Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Lee Brown with Remax Executive Realty in Concord, North Carolina. Last year, she closed 213 transactions with a total sales volume of $51 million. Her average sales price was $240,000, of which 30% were buyers and 70% were sellers. She operates a team with 14 members, two listing partners, six buyer specialists, one listing manager, one closing client care manager, one part-time courier, two part-time marketing managers, and one team leader. Lee Brown is the team leader of Lee Brown & Associates. She has been an agent for 13 years and works the Metro Charlotte market. In this call, Lee talks about how a young mom can build a cranking team. Owning your political and religious beliefs in your business and marketing. Mentoring under her successful top agent father. Radio advertising that generates seller leads and a 410% ROI. Marketing plan to her people farm that generates half her closings. Her diamond club for people who refer business. Low-cost past client events that generate goodwill and referrals acquiring an existing team and merging operations, starting a property management division, team dynamics, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com that's free referral script.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Lee. Well, thank you. Lee, before we talk about what you're doing now, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. So, I came from a real estate background. My daddy's been a licensed realtor since 1978. So growing up, I went to open houses and did all the little courier functions that kids will do. And by the way, it's a great way to hire your kids and avoid some taxes, but that's a whole different discussion. So I came up around this business, and then after college, I did not want to work with my dad because I wanted to go off and make it on my own. So I worked as a bar manager, didn't like that, went to work as a stockbroker, hated that, went to work for a chainsaw and lawnmower manufacturer, and I was the only woman on the sales force. That was a great experience, but it was not a career move. And so when I finally had enough of the corporate sales shenanigans, I decided to come home and go into real estate with my dad. And so that was in 2000, and I've been doing residential ever since. Are you still working with your dad? My dad is retired, about 90% retired. He still keeps his license and wanders in and out of the office when he feels like it. But for the most part, he's able to enjoy himself now. When you came back in in 2000 and and went full-time into real estate, do you think you had a fast start or a slow start? It was a little of both. 
my personality is very organized, and everybody who knows me knows that everything is a system and everything is a process. Well, my daddy is a people person, and he lives in piles and post-it notes and little scraps of paper everywhere. So he's that classic I personality. I'm a classic D personality. So when I came and joined him in the business, the first thing I had to do was not really sell houses. It was clean up the mess of an office that he had because Daddy was turning 100 sides a year with his assistant by accident. I swear I don't know how much money he let go through the cracks because he had no system in place outside of what was inside his head because my dad remembers everything, but God bless you if you've got to figure out what he's thinking because he's the only one that knows things. So I had to get his business organized as a business, and then that slowed me down. But it also allowed me to fast track because I joined him as a buyer's agent. And I'm still a huge proponent of any new licensee starting off in the business with an established agent as a buyer's agent because you have access not only to leads, but you have access to a mentor who can tell you what to expect, what to do in a transaction, the things that they'll never, ever teach you in licensing school and that you won't get in a two-week run-up class with any of these national companies. So. It allowed me to get some cash flow going fairly quickly. It allowed me to have access to somebody who had an incredible amount of knowledge in the industry and who has no enemies. And so everybody loves my dad, and I wanted to emulate that. So it sounds to me like you've been in the business for 13 years. Is that correct? Correct. How many homes did you sell last year? 213 sides last year. And what was your sales volume? We did $51 million. You're also managing some properties. How many properties do you manage? We have currently 58 properties under management right now, and I started that division in November of 2011 after I sat down and realized how many properties I'd handed off to property managers in the area. And the property management side of the business is a high-headache, low-margin business, so I realized I was giving away essentially my farm team. So we look at the property management division not as a cash cow, even though right now it's in the black. We look at that as the farm team, and then when these houses are finally back into an equity position where people can sell, then they can move up to the bigs and we'll sell them. Approximately how much rent is coming in each month off all these properties? Oh, about 58000 a month. It's about $1,000 on each property each month. Yes, pretty accurate. Where is Concord, North Carolina? So I appreciate you saying that the right way because, you know, it is not the one up north. But Concord is a bedroom community that's just north of Charlotte. So we are in the Charlotte MSA. Our office sits not even a half a mile over the city line from Charlotte. So our business is comprised, a portion of it is in Concord, but the bulk of it is in Charlotte and the other surrounding communities. But most people know where we are because this is the home of the Charlotte Motor Speedway. What's the population in Charlotte? Charlotte's MSA is about 1.2. Concord is about 65,000. Describe your current real estate market. Charlotte's kind of an interesting beast. We never bubbled up. So when the crash happened, we were about a year late to the party crashing. We started to skid, but we didn't fall off the side of a cliff because we'd never bubbled up. So it helped us for a while, but then, of course, you know, when everybody's fallen, everybody falls, and we came down as well, and as things have started to improve post-election, 
you're seeing a an army crawl out of the hole that we've gotten into. We're not trampoline jumping out. This is not the West Coast where you have 42 offers on a property and no appraisals, no inspections, any of that. We have some pockets that are fairly hot because there's a lack of inventory. We have a lot of available inventory, though. So in Charlotte, we're still in, in some areas where it's, solidly in a buyer's market and some areas we're in a seller's market but if you look at the market averages we're in a balanced market right now so right now what we're trying to explain to our sellers is that they cannot watch the news because it'll tell them we're up seven percent year over year and that's just not true one thing I will point out that I see a lot of realtors make an error on is they'll take the national news and quote it like it's gospel well when you look at price averages if you realize that the banks are sitting on their inventory right now, which they are, because everybody, every neighborhood's got a vacant house with a piece of paper in the window and the yard's mowed and the utilities are owned, but nobody's living there, those are the shadow inventory houses that the banks are hoping will rise to improve their balance sheets. So they're not in the market right now. And over the last six years, those have been the lowest common denominator, these foreclosures that have popped up in these neighborhoods. Well, when you remove the lowest common denominator, your average rises anyway. And this is a statistical fact, and it's a mathematical fact, and it drives me completely nuts that most people don't look at that fact where they assume that all prices are up 7% just because you took the cheapest crap out of the market. And so what we're trying to show our sellers, and we showed them this with data, because everything that I do I back up with data. We want them to understand that their price on their house did not go up 7% just because the cheap stuff came out of the market. Is it healthier? Yes. Is it healed? No. But as a little sidebar, um, you were asking about our averages in Charlotte. The whole market average is 198 on sales price. Our average is running around 240 so we hang in right there with the average in the market. And in Charlotte, that gets you a four-bedroom, two-and-a-half bath, two-car garage on a quarter of an acre, 10 years old. So you can get a good house for the money here. And that's also part of what's held our prices a little bit more flat than other areas. We have new construction competition. We have available land. And as long as the builders can keep building new construction that's at affordable prices, buyers will migrate to that. And it also puts pressure on them from a condition standpoint to make sure that they are upgraded to current standards and that they've got, you know, good smelling houses and they don't have deferred maintenance and all these other issues. So, you know, we're we're improving, but we are certainly not knocking the cover off the ball right now. Do you know what your average days on the market is? The market average right now is 110 days. My average is 92. Do you have a, a niche or a specialization? Well, I don't deal with assholes. I run an asshole-free business, if that counts as a niche. Um, and, and I do pride myself on that, and I'll tell my clients that, because if you hire those kinds of people, that's who they're friends with, and that's who they'll refer to you, so stay clear of them. But my niche isn't really anything specific like historic homes or first-time buyers or lakefront or any of that. We have tended to just work our people farm, and so our niche consists of our people. Could you please list the different ways that you generate leads in business? Uh, let's see. If I open up my spreadsheet, that will be the easiest way to answer that question because I can actually tell you where my business is coming from this year. I generate a lot of listing leads from radio. I do, a, I do heavy radio advertising, and I don't 
hire any managers or third-party real estate radio experts, and I won't name any names. I don't hire any of them to manage this. I do this myself, and I have found I can negotiate it just fine. So I do a lot on radio. I've been doing that for about two years, and it's turning into a very big portion of my business, and the ROI on that is 409%, so it's a great ROI. Um, All people don't have the same response on radio that I do, and I've got some more specifics I can share on that if you want. Client referrals is a very large piece of our business, and we treat our clients, we call them our diamonds. We tell them, if you want to be in our diamond club, you send us a referral. Well, everybody wants to be in the club, and so once we put them in that club, the only way you get in there is by sending us a referral. Whether or not it's a good or bad one doesn't matter. We just want an at-bat with somebody. That person then gets into our Diamond Club, and then they get some free stuff and extra perks. We do a lot of business off of sign calls because I have a lot of signs out there. I have some REO business. About 10% of my business is REO. It's not a huge piece. The primary reason I deal in it is so I can have uh, feet on the ground in the foreclosure world so I can see the trends for what's coming next. And realtors who refuse to touch or look at foreclosures and short sales do themselves a huge disservice because you're not seeing what's happening on the back end, especially with our government-backed mortgage entities and seeing what they're bringing down the pike. I've got a fair amount from my website. I've got a lot of business that comes in from agent referrals, and primarily that's through the CRS network, which is the Council of Residential Specialists. That is the premier designation in real estate, and that's huge generation of referrals for me. Oh, let's see, websites, websites, websites. That's pretty much it. Um, there's a bunch of spheres in here. And for us, our sphere, I don't do a geographic farm. I do a people farm, and I farm my past clients, which is another category I see cropping up in through here. And our past clients, we never, ever let them go until they die or um, tell us to go away. We stay in front of them. I stay in front of the people from my church, the people that I have worked with through the Charlotte Symphony. I used to sing with the symphony, and I no longer do that, but I still keep up with that database. People that I know through the kids' school, through PTA, through the kids playing ball, all of these little ways that we meet people, they all make it into my database because if I meet you and I get an address or an email, you're in my database. So we, we farm that fairly heavily, and that also in addition to keeping our past clients aware that we're still in the business, that also helps generate more diamonds for us and more client referrals because people are easily able to say, hey, just call my girl because she's still in real estate. Let's do this. Let's get into each one of those separately and and break them down into little itty-bitty pieces. Let's start with radio. You said you're running your own radio program, your own radio campaign. Let's talk about that a little bit. First of all, how do you know what to say? You said you're writing your own scripts and own production. What are you doing in that area? What, is the, what do these radio commercials sound like? Well, I copied the king of radio, and that's Russell Shaw in the Phoenix, Arizona market. Russell's been a, a top agent for as long as I can remember, and he's one of my heroes in real estate, and he's also one of my mentors. And I've one of the things that I've learned in my 13 years is that if you want to be like somebody, just let them know and then talk to them, and generally they will talk to you right back. Because those of us that have become successful love helping other people get successful. You don't have to recreate the wheel. So Russell is a huge influence in my life, and I just copied word for word what he's done. And then I add my own spin to it because I have found out I can get away with it. A lot of people can't get away with it. 
but I am a loud, opinionated, brash Southern woman, and I can get away with a lot of things that other people can't. And so I'll give you an example. There was a realtor in our local market that wanted to know why I was successful on radio, and I said, look, if you want to be successful, get a channel that I'm not on so that you know, you're not you know, cannibalizing each other. Said, and get a woman with a good voice to cut your ad because your voice is just you know, normal. And he decided to cut his own ad because he wanted to hear his own voice. There's an ego factor there. And he is not generating any business, and he can't figure out why. And I'm not telling him again because I told him the first time. But you have to have something that catches the listener's ear. You have to have a strong call to action, and you have to really cut through the clutter. And I advertise on conservative talk radio because the whole world knows that I am a fiscal conservative, and I don't mind being affiliated with you know political ads because I totally not afraid of what I believe. And by advertising on that station, which is male-dominated, my female voice cuts right through. And then with my southern accent, it really cuts through because their announcers and the other ads are almost all that flat Midwestern, no-accent kind of a thing. And it's stunning how many people will call and then they meet me and say, oh, you sound just like you do on the radio. And I say, well, that's because that's me on the radio. It's no great shakes or surprises so there's a lot of personality that comes into that and so some people have a gift for it and some people don't and if you don't have the gift there's no reason you can't hire a voiceover person so that you can get the leads from it we have a huge call to action where we tell people I'm selling a house every 1.5 days and the consumer really responds to that because in a transitioning market, whether you're going up, down, flat, sideways, and especially right now because we have flattened out over the last five weeks and a lot of consumers are thinking, what's going on? They are looking for somebody who is successful to tell them why their house is or is not going to sell. And they just, they're craving answers. And as realtors, we have a tendency to hide from that. Brother, if you're on the radio, you can't hide from that. You can't hide from the consumer. They're going to call you and they're going to email you and they're going to expect a response back. Let's get into the ad itself. You said, first of all, you are the one recording. It's your voice in the ad, correct? Yes, correct. You said that you're, you're copying Russell Shaw and his program. Are, are you doing the no-hassle listing program, or have you created your own? No, I don't do the no-hassle listing program. I mean, I've, I've made some stuff up to tell people we have flexible pricing because they want to hear about flexible pricing and that we – You know, we have an easy exit because I've had the easy exit my whole time in real estate. So we do offer easy exit. We offer flexible pricing. And I would suggest that all realtors should have flexible pricing because I guarantee everybody's had different rates for different people, for different situations, for different houses throughout their career. So why not let the consumer know that you can be flexible depending on the situation? That's just my thought. Um, We also say in the ad, the other thing that's very, very catchy to the consumer as I tell them, when I give my stats and I'm selling a house every 1.5 days, I'm not bragging about that statistic. I'm interviewing for a job. I want to be your realtor. And I'm going to tell you what, they call based on that and they say, I want to talk to the girl who is interviewing for a job. Because as realtors, we have a real big ego problem where we want to dress up and walk into the house and act like we are the kings and queens of the world. Well, in reality, we're interviewing for a job, and if we don't get hired, we're not getting paid. So why not let the consumer know that, yes, it's okay to ask me questions. It's okay to ask me 
what my days on market are. It's okay to ask me what my marketing plan is. It's okay to ask me about the comp down the street because I'm going to know. And as a realtor, if you don't welcome those questions, the consumer will shut you down right now because they crave transparency and they crave answers. Let's talk about the format of your ad. Is it just you talking or are you being interviewed by someone else like one of the radio hosts? Nope, it's just me talking. The radio um, guy does the intro, outro, just to say this is Lee Brown with Remax, and at the end it's, you know, call Lee Brown at. They do the, the intro, outro because that's their format. But I don't have an actual show right now because there's a guy that has a show and I'm waiting on him to quit paying for it so I can have that slot. I do 60-second ads. And I change them every month. And what's interesting is that I've been doing this for two years now, and because I change my ads every month, the consumer thinks that I have a radio show, even though I don't have a radio show and I'm not paying that extra charge. But because I'm saying different things every time I rotate an ad, they think that it's a show. It's very interesting. So you're changing them out every 30 days. Are you rotating the same thing over time, though? For instance, if you did one in January, does it come back up again in July? No, uh-uh. Are, are you talking about the same things? How do you not run out of stuff to talk about? Well, I mean, the bulk of the ad's the same. It's I'm selling a house every 1.5 days, and I'm interviewing for a job, and I want to be your realtor. So those kinds of things are going to be in every ad. So you've got some consistent things. And then the call to action is call me or email me, and I'll be glad to give you my honest opinion on the market. And that always generates phone calls. And so I do two ads a month, and I rotate the two ads. I run the first two weeks of every month because my competitor tends to run at the end of the month. And it's working out well for both of us because we both do very well on radio, but we're not cannibalizing each other too terribly much. So I run the first two weeks of the month, and I rotate my two ads. And I try to be somewhat timely without being too timely. So my my current ad, I'm talking about baseball, you know, and how – in real estate, you may assume that you're going to get a you know, nice fat meatball over the plate and you don't know what to do when the market throws you a curveball. Maybe you get a slider. Maybe you get a breaking ball and you don't know what to do with it. And so call me and I will help you figure out how to get a home run in this market. So that speaks to people about real estate and also talks about the current sports environment because I'm a huge baseball nut. And also, I have a, an ad about Congress where I explain in Charlotte, our market is like Congress. There's a couple of really good hot spots. The rest of it's really lukewarm, and you got a couple of duds. And if you want to know if your zip code is a hot, lukewarm, or a dud, call me. I'll give you a very honest opinion about the market. So it's not it's a political ad, but it's not even throwing stones at one particular party or the other or one politician or another. But all people that listen to conservative talk radio are interested in politics. And so you want something that wakes them up and makes them pay attention to your ad. And as realtors, we are slackers. And I, I say this to my colleagues, we're slackers about paying attention to the political environment. And every single realtor should be given to RPAC and paying attention to what's happening in their state legislatures and on the federal level because it affects our livelihood every single day and it affects our clients. And I want my clients to know that I'm paying attention and I'm going to bat for them in every way that I can. And they respond to that as well. Are you putting ads on more than one station? I have two stations. One is conservative talk radio and the other one is a sports channel. I sports talk all the time. Now, how did you pick those stations? Well, I'm a sports nut. So that drove the sports channel. Plus, as a woman, my voice does cut through the clutter. Otherwise, ESPN wouldn't hire all these terrible women sports analysts that drive me completely bonkers that they haven't done the sport they're talking about. That's a different issue. 
I'm on there because I do cut through the clutter and because I can speak sports. And also, it's a an interesting demographic because it tends to be male, 25 to 55. And I I have found in my 13 years of real estate that when it comes to real estate decisions, women tend to drive buying decisions. Men tend to drive selling decisions. And even in a gay couple or a lesbian couple, whoever leans toward, you know, whichever gender that is, is going to be the driver in that relationship. And so I found this to be very interesting. And plus, I do a fair amount of business in the um, gay and lesbian community. And so I get a lot of folks off of the sports channel that respect that. They want somebody who's not going to, you know, cross their eyes at them and, and act crazy because I don't, I don't care what people do at home. I just want to help them. So there's a, an interesting market on that side, but there's some crossover with conservative talk radio, but it tends to run more 50 to 65. So it's going to have some crossover in the middle, but it hits more of the boomer audience. The talk radio is going to be more affluent. It's going to be more upper education levels, more likely to be in a higher price point house, which is one of my personal goals is to raise my price point of my listings. Which radio station did you go on first? Did you start with the conservative talk radio or the sports talk? Conservative talk radio. Why didn't you not go on to a a music station? It sounds like you're focusing on talk radio. Because what I know from radio, it's like I listen to Sirius XM, so I'm not even my own target market because I have no attention span. But the people who turn on conservative talk radio, and I keep saying conservative because I'm sure you have liberals who listen to your show, but they understand that people that go to NPR to listen to it aren't buying and selling stuff from NPR. When people go to conservative talk radio, they are going to use the sponsors and vendors of the shows that they're listening to because they're very loyal to it, and it's just it is what it is. So on that channel... I, I wanted to be in a place where people had money to spend and would hear me. So they'll turn on this channel when they get in the car in the morning. Actually, while they're drinking their coffee, they're cutting it on. They don't turn it off again until night. They leave it on the background all day long. If you look at a contemporary pop channel where uh, women tend to hang out that runs, you know, your 80s and 90s and hits of today kind of thing, I think every market has that channel, if a song comes on that you don't like, what do you do? You change the channel. Or if an ad comes on that you don't like, what do you do? You change the channel. And so they have a lot of surfers that come in and out. So their numbers are high, but the amount of stickiness that they have is low. There's high stickiness on conservative talk radio. And it's the same thing with sports talk. The guys who turn that on leave it on all day long. And it's not going to be in your doctor's offices. The music channels will be in your doctor's offices and your dentist offices and these things. But what you're doing is you're you're then becoming a shotgun instead of a rifle. I want to be a rifle. A shotgun is going to be in front of more people but less frequently. I want to be in front of fewer people more frequently. And I'm the only person they think of with real estate. How about the frequency? How often are you playing the ad? depends on what month it is and what the rates are and, you know, whether I'm falling into a holiday or whatever. So I had fewer ads that ran in the fall because the election cycle drove up the cost of the ads and I'm running a whole lot in the summer because a lot of advertisers take the summer off. So I don't know if I run, I may run 60 or 80 spots a month. But my overall investment, I spend about $40,000 a year on radio. Actually, I take that back. It was 40 when I was just on conservatives. I'm around, 
uh, probably closer to 52 a year on radio right now. It sounds like you just recently added the sports station. Is that true? Yes, I added that this year. How about the results? You said that last year you invested about 40000 in the conservative radio ads. What came back to you? 410% return on, it, uh, return on investment. Now, the first year I did now this is the thing with radio. The first year I did it, I broke even, and I almost quit because that's a lot of money. That's more than most people make in a gross salary over the course of a year. So this is not for the faint of heart if you're going to do it right. So in that first year, I almost quit because break even is not good enough for me. I am a penny pincher, and I want to make sure that I'm getting a really good return on investment. But year two is where it really exploded because by that point, as I was speaking earlier about the repetitive nature of the people who listen to this channel, they don't turn it off. By year two, I had developed a high level of credibility in their mind because they'd heard me now for over a year consistently, over and over. And so who'd they call when they wanted to sell a house? They called Lee Brown. And what I found out, they weren't even interviewing me most of the time. They had decided that by listening to my ads, they knew who I was. And I think that's what really drove the the leads through the roof is that after that first year, I had all this credibility built in. I wasn't competing. And I walked in, gave my presentation, got the listing, sold it, bam. How long have you been on radio? Two years. Well, I'm in year three now. So two full years, I'm in year three. So three years ago, you started. First year, you broke even. Second year, you started to make some money. And well, actually, by the second year, you said you had a 400% return on your investments. Yeah. You were getting four times your money. Mm Mm-hmm. Very good. And so, in fact, it was so successful, you've now added another station. Are you generating leads off the sports talk radio? Yes. Yes. I've fine-tuned it now. I know what to say. I know what ads work. I know which catchphrases the consumers like. And so I went ahead and hammered those really hard right off the bat, sponsored a golf tournament right off the bat so that I could really get exposure into their into their audience and all of their color commentators and news talk ramblers all know who I am and they talk about me on their own now, which has been priceless. Very good. And you also mentioned you're doing this all on your own. You're doing your own production. You're doing your own ad buys. Any advice to anybody who's going down the path and wants to do it on their own? My advice is if you are talking to, there's there's a couple of companies that sell real estate radio buys. And when you hire somebody like that, you are paying a middleman because I'm going to tell you what, the radio station is not giving him any different rates than they're giving you, but he's going to get paid somehow. That's all I'm going to say. So when you call and they offer you a certain package, you know, if you're a realtor, you should know how to negotiate. So negotiate your deal. Ask for a better price on the spot. Ask for different spots. Ask for the best rotation. You want morning drive time. That's 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. That's the best time to be on the radio. And if they're throwing you weekend spots, the weekend spots should be just about free because that's when you have the fewest people listening to the radio in a consistent manner. Some of this you do by feel and by market because every market's different. I mean, if you're in Vermont, I can't imagine that conservative talk radio works as well as it does in North Carolina. But I also, you know, it just depends on where you are. You have to do some research, ask some people, listen to the station that you're thinking about advertising on, call those advertisers and ask them if they make any money advertising on that station. They'll tell you if they do or not. The rate card, it sounds like you're not paying what's listed on the rate card. Correct. What kind of discount should people expect if they start to negotiate? I just think it depends on the market. It's going to depend on the station. It's going to depend on if it's a 
clear channel corporate station or if it's a one-off privately owned station. It depends on your population. I mean, I'm in an expensive market because of our MSA. So it just depends. But anybody who pays full sticker and doesn't ask is doing themselves a disservice. And you have to ask yourself if you're even in the right business. This radio signal is going out all over Charlotte. Mm -hmm. So you're taking listings all throughout the, the entire metro area. Does that mean you're doing a lot of driving to get to them? Well, I was because my team was six people until, um, well, just recently. I just added to get to 14 members. So we, we have really done a lot of growing this year. But the main people that I hired, I hired two listing partners who live in different places in Charlotte so that I don't have to drive everywhere. It's just given us a little better listing coverage. But, yes, I have listings in all of our surrounding counties, and they do get serviced properly. And I know these markets because I am an OCD addict of real estate, and I do my research and know the builders and know the neighborhoods and know the comps and stats. So I've had to explain to a lot of sellers that real estate's not brick and mortar anymore. It's got nothing to do with where my business card says my office is located and everything to do with my market knowledge of where your house is located and what your competition looks like. Let's do this. Let's shift gears. Let's talk about your past clients and sphere of influence. It appears to me that you're generating just a, a bit over half of your business from that source. Let's let's dig into that. I, I like your idea of diamonds. Let, let's get down into some of those details. How many people are in your database of past clients and sphere of influence? Well, the database, of course, consists of anybody from whom I've ever gotten an email address or a mailing address. So it's pretty gigantic. It's about 8,200 right now. It's big. The diamonds, that's 224. So it's two entirely different buckets. So let's break those buckets out. Let's break those buckets out. You say 8,200 total people. For instance, let's break it out into how many of those are past clients? I have, I have no idea. I mean, we have, I guess I've probably sold, I don't know, 1,400 houses in my 13 years. I've sold a lot of houses. We also have all the orphans in there because we, we keep our orphans in the past client bucket as well. And anybody who's, of course, not familiar with orphans, that's the other side of the transaction that you're dealing with. So the closing I had today, the buyer, I know their agent. He's never going to talk to them ever again. He got his check today. He's done. So they're mine. And I've met them, had eye contact, had a great conversation at the closing table, and now they're added to my database. So five years from now, when they sell that house, they're going to remember that I'm the agent who sold it to them, and they will call me and want to sell their house, and that will be fine and dandy. So those are orphans, and they are a huge chunk of our database. Now, I will caveat that, that if the other side is represented by somebody that I know does the job well, I don't even bother to market to them, but I know who does and who doesn't market in this market. So if you took your past clients and orphans, uh, there's a little bit of weed out, but there's approximately 2,800 people right there. Mm-hmm. And then you've got your sphere of influence. I assume there's a core sphere of influence, people you really know well. And then you mentioned you also add in whoever. Do you know how to break that out in this list? I don't break that down. I mean, if I, um, the only way you become a core person is by sending me a referral. Those are the people in my diamond group. Otherwise, you could have been my best friend since kindergarten. If you've never sent me a stitch of business, you're just in the regular old database with everybody else. I mean, truly, I mean, it's what it boils down to because I've got people that I've known for years, and I love them. They love me. We have dinner together and do everything together, but they've got a realtor relationship that they treasure. I'm not going to mess with that because I respect that they have a realtor that they love and trust. So we don't even talk real estate when it comes to those things. So I'm not going to market to them and try and swipe them away from one of my really great competitors because 
you know, we're fortunate in Charlotte. We've got a lot of really awesome agents. And I think that's what, you know, it makes things better for the consumer. And it's why I hope all agents are trying to always get better. But I, I could never handle every listing in our market, nor every buyer in our market. And I don't try to. So I spend most of my time with the people who want me to be their trusted real estate advisor not with the ones that I would like to have someday. They'll get the periodic stuff from me, but people who get the good stuff have shown me that I'm their girl. Do you ever remove people from your database? And if so, why? Well, if they're assholes to us or if they call in and they're rude to my team, I'll, I'll delete them. If, um, you know, say that they interview me and they're nasty, we delete them. If they sell their house and use somebody else, because that happens to all of us, I'll go ahead and delete them. I mean, it's just different reasons that you delete people, but primarily it's when you're a jerk. Let's talk about how you're staying in touch with your database. Sounds like you've got two main groups going here. You've got a general database, and then you have your diamond group. Let's talk about your general database first. How are you staying in touch with those folks? So everybody in the general database gets the email newsletter, and we send that out weekly, and then there's a more complex stats-related one that goes out monthly. The weekly one is a mix of home repair tips, curb appeal stuff, um, you know, just whatever interesting something we might want to send out, just typical realtor stuff that we all get from each other from time to time. So everybody gets those, and what's interesting about them is what the consumer responds to on those general weekly emails is not the information in the email. What they respond to is the featured property. So we change out the featured property every week. That's what generates people to wake back up and look at the database. So they'll say, oh, I see you listed this brick ranch in Harrisburg, and I don't know if you remember us or not, but we've got a ranch in Harrisburg, and we want to know what's happening with the market. Well, they saw that house that triggered their thought about their house. It's very interesting how that works. So we are, we're very specific in rotating through price points, areas of town, styles of homes on that featured property piece. So everybody gets the, the email stuff. And then we have a mailing list, and the mailings go out every two months, and they'll get and I get this through a vendor called Teldon Marketing, and that's T-E-L-D-O-N, and I love Teldon. They do a great job for me, and I'm very, very pleased with them. And cost-wise, it's fantastic. I spend about $5 per name per year through Teldon to have six touches sent out. They In November, they get a full-size wall calendar. And my clients, I have a lot of old people in my database. I love old people. They love that calendar because it's the first one they get. I can beat the oil company and the insurance guy, and so they hang mine on the wall. And then they'll get a whiteboard from me in, I think that's my, the third mailing. you get a notepad. The, the total six things would be a wall calendar, notepad, a um, whiteboard, which that's the most popular thing outside of the calendars because families with young kids, the kids will take it and just write stuff on it, and the old people love it because they can keep their prescriptions on it. And then they'll get two postcards and a newsletter. So that's your six touches. And so they get a mix of collateral material and then just a, a pretty touch in the mail. And the thing I really like about Teledon is they let me scrub the database every time a mailing goes out. So if I've had to delete people, I can take them off quickly. And if I've added people, so when after you go to closing, and of course we add you into the mailing list, they'll get added fairly promptly. And so within two months of buying a house from me, 
you're already going to be getting free stuff in the mail, which is good. Well, if I add that up, it sounds like uh, 24 touches a year. No, no, it's six touches a year. Well, it sounded like you had the four emailed newsletters, and then you had the six direct mail. Is that correct for the general database? Well, the emails go out weekly. So there's a weekly email. There's also a monthly. And the monthly is the stats one. So you've actually got 52 touches going out. 12 of the 52 are stats, and the other 40 are fluffy. And then you've got the six touches through print. So, 58. Yeah, yeah, very good. <laughs> I miscounted. That's awesome. So, let's go back to those emails real quick. You said the weekly email is this newsletter. It has some generic information, but people like those featured properties. How many featured properties do you have? One, two, three? How many properties are featured? I do one per week unless I've got some house that's in need of attention, in which case I'll do two. And that would be a high-maintenance seller who's needing extra marketing or whatever. I say, fine, I'll make you a featured property and throw them on in there. You also said you have these detailed, once a month you have a detailed newsletter that goes out. What's in that? That's just going to have the average sale price, the average days on market, how many closings are happening, You know what's the trend. And I do, I do two different stat buckets. I do Charlotte and then I do uh, Cabarrus County where Concord is located. Uh, so it's more statistical. Mm-hmm. So that's our general database. Now let's talk about the diamonds. What are you doing for the diamonds to stay in touch with them? So we use a program called From Your Friends, and From Your Friends is available throughout the country, and it's very cheap. It's like, I don't know, 77 cents a name. And then every month they get a postcard with a really good coupon on it, and it says it came from Lee Brown. And so it could be a bottle of wine at a restaurant. It could be a free entree. The one that got me the biggest response was when we had a free burrito at Qdoba because apparently everybody loves Qdoba. But they, they get something that's actually of value. And so we tell our people at closings, you know, if you want to receive these really good coupons, all you got to do is send us a referral and you make it onto the Diamond Club and then you're going to get free stuff every month. So they'll get those from your friends things. And so that's actually not a very big investment at all because they're fairly inexpensive. And then they'll also get invitations to specific events like our shredding event we do every year at tax time, which is probably the best money I ever spend. Everybody wants an invitation to that because it's free and my team loves it because it's only two hours of time. So that one works out really well. You know, just periodic stuff like that. Just, you know, nothing nothing real fancy, but we'll just occasionally decide to do something for our diamonds. Like right now we're about to do a cookout at a local park and we're going to invite our diamonds to stop by and bring their families. I'm going to do a movie event for the diamonds in late July when um, Despicable Me Part 2 comes out because my local, locally owned movie theater, not one of the big giant chains, he's going to let me rent the place out. And so we'll, we'll invite all the families to come to that. Sounds like you're, you're sending out these coupons. By the way, those going out by email? No, they're, they're snail mail. Oh, they're actually mailed out. And the, the name of that company again was? From Your Friends. From Your Friends. Okay. And so that's going out monthly, and then you have these invitations to special events or parties throughout the year. How many parties or events are you putting on each year? Oh, two, maybe three tops. I'm not a party person. So for me, the shredding event counts as a party, and 
since we're a Remax franchise, we can get the Remax balloon. So we we try to do that at least every other year because everybody likes to come ride in the balloon. And the uh, the movie event will be that'll be very popular when we do that. We'll we aim for that in late summer because the stay at home moms are getting really tired of their kids by that point. So they love a free movie. How long have you been doing the free movie? Uh, this will be the second year doing that. And how about that shredded event? Shredding event we've been doing for six years now. Six years. And that costs 400 bucks. It is so easy and so cheap. Our local shredding truck charges 200 bucks an hour, and they park in your parking lot for two hours, and you tell people to drive by and drop your papers off, and they do, and they love it, and they go away. It's wonderful. And they just shred them right there on the spot so they can watch them being torn up. Exactly. Secure shredding. In fact, the local doctor's office and the churches, they'll bring stuff that they need to get rid of because they, you know, have sensitive documents where they love using this because it doesn't cost them anything. During that event, are are you meeting and greeting when people come by during the two hours? Oh, yes. We make them sign in so we know who they are and who's, whose client they were, who they belong to. And then there's always somebody there to meet and greet and thank them for coming. And primarily, they thank us for doing the events. Really nice. And the movie event, how are you putting that on? Are you taking over a, a local theater? What days are you doing that? How's that working out? We're just going to do it. We just do it one time, so it's you know it's a Friday afternoon, so it's not going to interfere with his business, with the with the theater owner's business. But it's a good time for families to come out on a hot afternoon, and it's going to run us. It's going to cost us about three hundred to four hundred dollars. It's not very expensive. And I only will do a family film so that there's no risk of, you know, language or sex or violence or anything that would keep a mom from bringing her, you know, four-year-old to the movies. And you said you tried to do that in late summer. Mm-hmm. It'll, it'll wind up being, I got to pick the date with my guy, but it's going to be late July when I do it this year. Now, you mentioned that you're getting referrals from other agents. Tell us some more about that. I do a lot of speaking nationally, teaching other realtors you know, what am I doing is sharing basically what I've been given. And so I receive referrals from all over the country because a lot of people know me. And then I get a lot of referrals from the CRS network, and that's the Council of Residential Specialists, which is a designation that I got back in 2003. And to qualify for that designation, you have to have done a certain number of transactions and you have to have taken a certain number of classes. And so I know when I'm when I'm giving out a referral, I only go through the CRS network because I know those are agents who have not only done the classes above and beyond the licensure classes, but they've done enough houses that they might know what the hell they're doing and actually get the deal closed because I don't want to hand my, my precious clients to somebody who might screw it up. So that's the network that I go to to place referrals, and it's also a lot of people in that network send their referrals to me because they know me. And the beauty of the referral network is that, you know, you're not paying these ridiculous 40% fees to the relocation companies that are just leeches and they're, you know, stealing your money for nothing. You're giving your trusted clients to somebody that you trust that's going to take great care of them. And it's a it's a wonderful way to take care of your clients. I Yeah, I get paid on it. I, I love referral fees. I love paying out referral fees. But my primary goal in giving and receiving referrals is to make sure the clients are cared for. So I think a lot of agents do leave business on the table by not thinking ahead about referrals. And I tell anybody that will listen, when you take classes like the CRS classes, they have two-day classes where you can 
do listing soup to nuts, buyers soup to nuts, and totally break down how to do this business better. So if you live in Kansas City, you should go to realtor.org and pull down the home buyer reports because it will tell you by zip code who's moving in and out of which zip code. And a lot of realtors don't know that this information is available, but it's free and it's paid for in your dues. So you should totally go get it. But it's in realtor.org. So if you live in Kansas City, go look at your report and see what zip codes are moving in and out of Kansas City. Then go take a class in that city. And then you will make friends in the city that's sending business to and from yours, and you will increase your odds of referrals tremendously. I love taking classes, and in, in, I'm in Charlotte, essentially. So I'll go to Raleigh. That's two and a half hours away. But there's a lot of business that goes back and forth between Charlotte and Raleigh. I want to be known to the Raleigh agent so that when they need to send a referral, they will send it to me, and I will send them a check. You've got to be very specific in how you approach your real estate business. This is not, again, it's not a shotgun. Be a rifle. Be very, very purposeful and specific in what you're doing, and it will pay off. If you go to a real estate conference within your brand, you know, I go to the REMAX conference. I think Keller Williams agents ought to go to family reunion, and CB agents ought to go to the Cobalt Banker events and all these other things. But don't go just to drink and hang out. Take business cards and tell people what market you're in and tell them something interesting about yourself. Don't just, you know, willy-nilly hand out cards. But go find half a dozen people in markets that do business with your market and say, I want to be your referral source. And if anybody in your office mentions somebody in this area, I want to help them too. You'd be amazed at how far you can get with those six half a dozen targeted conversations which can be so much more powerful than just giving away 300 business cards to people you never have a conversation with. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search Real GTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. You mentioned you're also getting business from sign calls. Are you doing anything special with your signs to cause that to happen? I do use reflective signs. I moved to those after a lot of prodding from my Yankee friends that have snow issues, and they kind of have to use reflective signs. Well, you know, we get like an inch every three years down here, so we don't have snow as an issue, but... To stand out, it really does help, and I have noticed that our leads have gone up tremendously because the consumers are out after dark driving around, and that's increased it a lot. But with sign calls, it's very basic. The more signs you have in yards, the more phone calls you will get. And I know from coming from buyer's agent to becoming a listing agent to starting my own team to becoming the the rainmaker and controlling the amount of inventory that I do. So moving through all these phases in my business, your sign calls don't really explode until you get over 10 listings. If you don't have 10 listings, you need to go get 10 listings because that's when the sign calls will really take off. And so the more signs you have in yards, the more phone calls you will get. And one of the things that I've done that is, you know, people always want to know, Lee, how do you sell this many houses? You know, what are you doing? What's the magic secret? And I tell them the magic is I work every day and I answer the phone. And I know that sounds like rocket science, 
but realtors don't answer their phones. Go on vacation and call signs, because I do it everywhere I go. I call signs. Agents don't answer their phones. You leave a message, and it takes them three days to call you back. And you want to know what drives a consumer nuts? That's what it is. But if you have signs in yards, have a way for your phone to get answered. So the way my phones are set up, my signs don't have my cell phone on them. I do not give out my cell phone number except to people who need to have it anymore because I'm tired of answering my phone. But the number that's on my signs is a Google Voice number. And that Google Voice number simultaneously rings the agents on my team. And whoever answers the phone first gets to talk to that lead. So there's a a double incentive there. The first one is that the buyer's going to get to talk to somebody. So we are going to have a much higher likelihood of converting that lead if they can be converted. And the other thing that happens is that I know whoever is answering the phone is in a place where they can talk because my agents know if they are with a client, they sure the hell better not answer that phone because that would be a complete sign of disrespect to the client you're with, and we're not doing that. So somebody is going to be available to talk to that consumer. If nobody's available, I have a service on the back end called Ruby Receptionist, and that's Ruby like the stone for your ring, and it's not cheap. It runs me about 300 bucks a month. But what Ruby does is provides a live voice on the phone in the event that nobody's able to answer it. So their task is to get a name, a phone number, an email address, and then they will start hammering the agents until they get somebody on the phone. But we can get somebody to talk to that buyer faster, and that is making a huge difference in conversion. But I will tell you, one agent has a hard time doing it all themselves. So if you're a solo agent, you can't answer every sign call all the time because you've got to have supper with your family. You've got to go to your kid's dance recital and you've got to deal with the clients that you have so partner up with somebody else find somebody in your office that doesn't have that many deals and have them answer your phones and pay your referral feedback but work out some kind of a deal where your calls get answered we haven't listened to the consumer the consumer right now is in a period of instant gratification like we've never seen and As realtors, we are accustomed to protecting the information. We have to stop that. If you want to get your leads back from Zillow and Redfin and Trulia and all the rest of them that steal our leads from us, answer your phone. That was really interesting what you said there earlier on. You're using a Google Voice number because it can simultaneously ring all of your buyer agents at the same time. That's amazing. And it's free. It's google.com forward slash voice. And you can get a phone number in your area code. Now, North Carolina law requires that you have the brokerage information on the sign, so the brokerage information is on there. It's just smaller than mine. But the brokerage phone is not going to be answered as fast as my phone. I want to do the best job for the consumer that I can. So that phone number is front and center. And when you go into your Google account, and again, this is free. All you need is your regular old Gmail account. You set it up, and you can put in there what phones that it does ring. It's it's really a no-brainer. Do you use flyer boxes on your signs? Are you putting up uh, property brochures? No, I don't use flyers anymore because the flyers vanish and we don't get an at-bat with the consumer because they'll pull the flyer and leave and we don't have a chance to say, but it has this, but it has that. And there's only so much information you can get on a flyer. So we have a couple of listings where we finally break down and give them some flyers to shut them up because they think they need them. Well, whatever, I'll put them out there. 
but that's two of my 87 listings right now. I just don't mess with them. Once they see what happens, when you put the box out there and it's empty within two hours because the teenagers or the neighbors or somebody drove by, grabbed all the flyers and left because that's how people operate now, they kind of realize it's not going to do the job for them. And what I know is that consumers would rather not have a flyer box than find an empty one because if they find an empty flyer box, they get pissed off because then they assume the agent's lazy and they don't mess with it. They don't call us. They don't email us. No, nothing. What we have on our signs is, of course, all our information is there. The savvy consumer is going to find us on the mobile app anyway, and we see a lot of our leads are coming in from the homes.com app. Um, that, For whatever reason in Charlotte, that's the one we get leads from. And we know that the consumer will call us if they need information, but they go to the REMAX website. They know how to find the house. They go to Realtor.com app, Truly, Zillow, all these different apps. So the flower box, I think, is a waste of money, and frankly, it's a waste of trees, too. I'm not even a tree hugger, but I think it's a waste of trees. And then the other thing that we do to help offset not having a flower box is I do have a service called VoicePad, which is on the top of the signs, and essentially that's one of these text services where the consumer can call that number and have the photos and price and house data sent to their phone while we capture the lead on the back end. And the cost of that is pretty astronomical, but our lender pays for that for our office um, in return for getting the mortgage leads on it as well. So that one I wouldn't be using if it weren't available through my office. Interesting. Do you have your picture on your sign? No, I do not. The leads that are coming in through that voice pad versus the people are calling direct, do you have any idea how many people are going each direction? Okay, let me just look at my my list here. It looks like we get an average of three a day off of voice pad. And then as far as sign calls, we probably field a dozen a day. So it's like four times as many people are calling direct. Yeah, and let's look at it this way too. So as realtors, we tell each other all the time that nobody wants to talk to us, don't we? You hear realtors say this, nobody wants to talk to us. Well, they do when they need information. What, the reason they don't call us is because they know by now we don't answer the damn phone. So if we'd answer the phone, we would talk to more people. And, and I, I'll tell you, I do this to my agents in my office. I will sneak attack them and call them all the time. If they don't answer, I'm like, why are you not answering your phone? You want to know why you're not selling houses? Answer your phone. And if you can't do it, get somebody who can. Hire an assistant. Trade out with another agent. Do something. I mean, the consumer who picks up the phone and calls is a better lead than somebody who never, ever wants to talk to us because the person who never talks to us ain't buying a house. I have all these listings out there, and you know we're working a dozen sign calls a day. Well, guess what? Those dozen sign calls are a hell of a lot better chance of conversion than all the random Internet leads that come in and say blackberrybush at AOL.com. That's a really strong source for you are the sign calls. Absolutely. You brought up internet. You've also mentioned website before. You have a couple of people working on that, which we'll get to in a minute. When you say website, what do you mean? Are you generating leads off the internet? Oh, yes. We generate a lot of leads off the internet because I've been there longer than most people. I was one of the original Active Rain people, and my blog's been out there for a long time. So I've got really great SEO, and I continue to work on that. It's not the number one priority for me anymore, but I keep it alive and we keep working on it. We generate a lot of stuff through specific keywords on Google. And if you ask the consumer when they call in to list a house or to buy a house, ask them why they're calling you. And what I have found in mentoring and coaching agents is they will ask, 
how'd you find me? And the consumer says, on the internet. And the agent says, great, what's your address? And they move on. That is moving on too fast. What you need to ask them is, well, may I ask what website you were on? You need to know where your money is well spent. And my consumers will tell me, I found you on Google. And I'll say, well, how? How'd you run across me? There's all these thousands of agents in Charlotte and thousands of people with websites. How did you run across me? And they will say, I Googled blah, blah, blah. And they will tell me the keyword search term they used to find me. And all I had to do was ask two more questions. As the most influential man that's ever lived in real estate always said, that was Howard Brenton, and we lost a jewel when we lost Howard. Howard always said, go three deep. Don't just ask one question, ask three, because then you will get all the way to the answer. And so when I find out from a consumer what keyword they use to find me, by grannies, that's the one that's going to go into all my listing posts and all my blog posts because I know what's working. And I don't have to hire any pack of Pakistanis or Indian SEO specialists from anywhere. I can ask these questions and find out what the consumer's doing. They'll tell me. And with your buyer leads, you can also ask them, what website do you use to search? Are you on Trulia, you Zillow, you Realtor.com? Where do you go? They will tell you where they go to search. That's where you need to be. So we do generate a lot of leads. We're very targeted. On your internet marketing, you talked about SEO, search engine optimization, by looking for these keywords. And then you put make sure that they go into your posts and, and so forth on your website to try to draw those folks in some more. Are you also doing pay-per-click? I do pay-per-click through a lead service called Real Geeks. And that's very similar to Tiger and Boomtown and all the rest of them. And my lender foot half the cost of that. And primarily, we just use that to feed buyer agents leads. How much of your business last year, what percentage of your business would you attribute to internet leads? Well, this year, it's about 10 to 11% of the business this year. Let's do this. Let's talk about your property management division that you just opened up. You said you've already brought in, was it 58 homes into that? Mm-hmm. 58 homes under management. Why did you decide to open the property management? You started to talk about that earlier. You said you, were, you felt you were losing this business. It was moving on. Was there any other reason why you decided you wanted to do this property management? Well, I had tried sending my property management leads elsewhere. And I had sent it to two different firms in Charlotte. And neither one of them took the same level of care of clients that I take of clients. Because like I mentioned before, property management is high headache, low margin. And so you don't get great customer service. And I was really, really irritated by the fact that my beloved clients would call me and say, Lee, I can't get the property manager to call me back. I tried to call her three days ago. She won't call me back. And this was happening consistently because property managers don't return phone calls. And I think it happens across the board in all these different markets. So, you know, I I couldn't deal with it anymore. And I sat down and I looked at the leads and I sent out, I referred out 75 rental properties in 2011. That would have more than been profitable had I kept those in-house. And that's when I said, you know what, done with this. I'm going to keep them myself. And that way I won't lose the future business either because I also found out the woman I had been um, sending all my property management business to, if the seller was wanting to sell their house, she told them, well, you can just use me. You don't have to go back to Lee. And she was sniping on my business. And I don't put up with that. 
So I said, screw that, open my own division up. So I, I wholly own that division. It is not set up through REMAX. I'm just the owner, and I hired a licensed realtor to be the property manager, and she's also the BIC of that division. So I'm the owner, and I feed all my property management leads there, but it's not a part of my REMAX volume. And how many people do you have working over there? Is it just the one? Just the one. I'm not sure how North Carolina works, but you're an employing broker. You're able to set up your own company outside of REMAX. I assume you went and talked to REMAX first, and they said they didn't want to do property management, so you, you opened it up on the side with their uh, their blessing. Does that sound correct? Yeah, no, not really. I don't really care what they say because it's not their business. It's got nothing to do with the residential real estate piece. And my brokerage license is not hanging over there, and I just own it. So North Carolina, you can own as many brokerages as you want. You only operate and hang your license out of one. So if I wanted to, I could open up Mike's Real Estate over in Raleigh, name it that, and own it, and put you there as a licensed BIC and let you run the thing, and I'll just make the profits off the top. So I set it up as a, as a wholly separate division. It's not related to my business at all, except that I own it. And I fully disclose that, that I own that division, but I'm, I'm not messing in it. My rental properties are over there, too. My, man, my manager's managing my properties just like the rest of the, the public's properties. You've obviously built it up pretty quickly. Is the only business over there from what you're referring into it? Yep. It's, uh, it's the people who I've met with in listing appointments who can't afford to sell or who aren't willing to sell at current market prices but who need to move on. So we give them a, a place to put their property. But they still get access to me and they still get access to you know, this level of service. It's our farm thing. These are not traditional investors that are ending up in the property management. These are just people that, because the market's been soft, they're not able to sell right now, and they had to move on. They are landlords by default. Landlords by default. Very good. Are you going to expand your business and go after investors, or do you think that this property management business will dwindle as the market comes back stronger? I don't think it'll dwindle. I mean, we may wind up having, what will happen as the market comes back is more people like Joe and Jane Brown, who live down the street, think they want to add a rental house to their portfolio of investments. And so we'll have those people, not the professional investors, but the side investors who are just using it for diversification. So we'll keep the division there. I don't anticipate this ever becomes 200 or 400 units and we ever become a giant property management company. I think this becomes a, a um, side benefit to our clients. Because if it gets too big... I'm going to run into all the same issues that these other property management houses run into, which is too many headaches and not enough people to man them. And it goes back to why you call it your farm team, because you think that the majority of those folks are going to come back and list their home for sale as the market starts to turn. Absolutely. They'll never have lost touch with me. They'll never have gone into somebody else's database or worked with anybody else but us. And so we'll have access to these people. How are you charging for your property management services? In our market, we charge half of the first month's rent at the time that we secure a reasonable tenant, and that's the finder's fee. And then we charge 8% of the monthly rent at the ongoing management fee. The prevailing rate in Charlotte tends to be about 10%, but I don't, I'm not looking for this to be a huge profit center, even though it is one. Right now, we, we charge 8% to make sure things work for our clients to provide them a reason not to shop us. And again, it's, it's, it's just a client perk that we're offering this service. How are you compensating the, the broker, the property manager who's doing the day-to-day? She's on salary. 
So you've been able to get that into a fixed cost. So as long as you get enough properties, it's going to cover. And, and you said you've already moved into the black. You are correct. Let's do this. Let's talk about your team. You are apparently on a, a rather large expansion mission this year. Last year, you had maybe six or so people, and now you're already up to 14. Why are you doing that? Why are you adding so many people? Because we have a surplus of leads. So when I'm talking to agents about team building, and it's, it's one of those educational aspects that is kind of lacking in real estate because there's a lot of teams out there, but there's very little education for teams. The first thing they ask is, how do you know when to build a team? And the very simple answer is, when you have a surplus of leads, you need a team, or you start referring them out. But teams take on different sizes and shapes and identities. In my team, I had a surplus of listing leads, and I had a surplus of buyer leads. And so I've added buyer agents this year, and I've added listing agents. I've also added another part-time admin to help my salaried admin people keep afloat because I'm really avoiding adding another salary because I'm not exactly sure what Obamacare is going to wind up looking like. So I'm very, very cautious on hiring of our hourly or salaried people. Let's do this. Let's talk about what your team looked like last year when you closed 213 transactions. So people are probably looking at some of those ratios and then we'll talk about the overall team today. Who is on the team as far as positions? Who was on the team last year when you did the 213? My two full-time admins, one is a listing manager and one is a closings manager. They are full-time salaried people and they were both with me. And I had two full-time buyer agents with me last year. They're still with me now. And I had my two part-time people, so I add them together to make the sixth person. But uh, one part-time is a courier slash um, kind of all-purpose Jill of all trades in the office, and the other one is the marketing manager who works from home, and essentially all she does is put pictures on websites and make sure that all the listings are exposed fully quickly. So last year you had six team members yourself. You had seven people, and they closed 213 transactions with seven people. Sound right? Yes, seven people of whom five are full-time, two are part-time. And how about this year? Now, you've, again, grown this team. Who have you added and why? I added an experienced buyer agent right in December, the end of the year. She had decided that she needed cash flow and she was tired of dealing with sellers. And so I don't usually hire people who have a real estate general broker's background because they come with bad habits, but I've known her since I was, literally a child. And um, it was really good to have a baby boomer on the team. So she joined me in December and then everybody else joined me in May. So I had two newly licensed buyer's agents, one of whom comes out of new home sales, one of whom is a past client. And then the third buyer agent that got added in May was part of the acquisition of another team that I completed in May where I um, took over a team of four people that was also in the Charlotte market. And the two guys who were the leads of that team have become my listing partners. Their buyer agent I inherited and their part-time admin I inherited her as well. That opens up an interesting question. You said you acquired another team. Tell us more about why that came about and how it happened. So what was happening is my listing leads had gotten so hot and heavy. I was about three weeks out on appointments. So if you called me today and you wanted to list your house, it's going to be three weeks before I can get to you. And what's crazy is most people were willing to wait three weeks to get to me, which I think is insane, but that's all right. 
Um, but I was letting some leads get through the cracks because some people just, for whatever reason, can't or won't wait. And, and I don't blame them, but I don't have any more hours in the day. And I don't work weekends and I don't work nights because I have children. So I had to find somebody to come in and help me with listings. However, listings are the lifeblood of your business. And so you can't just hire a newly licensed person and expect them to know how to price a house, help them understand the schematics of market conditions, for them to know the dialogue that I say, the marketing that I do, and to be able to tell the story correctly in a way that's going to best benefit the consumer. So the team that I acquired, I had been mentoring them for, I guess, about three years and their business helping them grow. And they have the same value set that I have. They have a high level of integrity. Um, every customer and client they've ever had raves about them and their level of service and how wonderful they are. And they're just good human beings. So I um, went to them in April and said, won't y'all join my team? And they've, they've been their own team for 10 years. So these are not green people, both of them making six figures. They're making good money. And so they, um, they, we had a lot of conversations about what's in it for them, what's in it for me. And it's, it's turned out really well so far uh, as far as, you know, a, a, a fit because we are a values fit. And that's the hardest thing to find in team building is making sure personalities and values fit because all realtors are not cut from the same cloth. So I interviewed a lot of people and talked to a lot of people over the last couple of years trying to figure out how to solve the listing side. And I finally got that solved. And so as we work through our growing pains right now of you know, making sure everybody's got the same passwords and get emails fixed and get Dropbox loaded, all those different little just things that make us run smoothly, we're already seeing that it's um, it's a huge benefit to the consumer because now they've just got more people that can get back to them faster. So the two people who are running the acquired team, those two people have become your two listing partners? Yes. Unless it's somebody who needs me, they are taking all listing appointments now. You mentioned these folks were already successful. Mm-hmm. Why did they decide to join you when they were already independent? Well, uh, as any realtor knows, there are a lot of headaches in being a realtor. There's a lot of expenses and there's a lot of the business angle. And so I, I mentioned a while back that the first job I had to do when I got into real estate was turn my dad's real estate business into a business. And so these guys super with, with the consumer, man. They can close a deal. They can list a house. They can sell a house. Everybody loves them. Business people, they are not. Marketing, not their strong point. Bookkeeping, not their strong point. They were managing it just fine, but not their strong point. And so what I was able to offer them was an opportunity to just work with sellers, not have to drive buyers around town, not have to fool with dealing with the REMAX fees and the marketing and the signs and the lockboxes and the websites and the stuff that we have to deal with in real estate. And so I took all that off their plate. And in return, we rolled their database into mine and I'm handing them my leads and everybody's going to make more money this way. It's a skill set match. And so you you kind of figure out, and I think for most agents, it comes at about the two or three year mark. You figure out what you're good at in real estate. I personally am very good at lead generation. That is my gift. I don't really care to drive anybody around town ever again. I've done that. And I don't really need to go look at any more linen closets and garages because I've seen them all. And I'm good at that too, but I'm tired of that. So what I do is lead generate and help my team run well 
trying to provide a higher level of real estate experience to the end consumer because they just don't get a really good experience most of the time. So that's what I'm good at. These two guys really, really like listings, didn't like buyers. Great. Now they're only going to work with listings. My girls who work buyer agents, they don't really need to work listings. They don't like the confrontation. They don't like the risk on pricing. They don't like the dealing with the babysitting and the phone calls and the hand-holding that goes on for months. So they just put people in cars and go sell houses. My admin girls don't want to work nights and weekends. They work 8 to 5. They close up shop and head out the door. So as of right now, we have everybody in the right seat on the bus, and the bus is moving along at a very good clip. A couple more quick questions on the acquisition. I think that's real interesting. Was there any compensation paid to the other team to be acquired? No. You said that you absorbed their database. Do they get any additional compensation for business that comes out of that database? No. Did they take any ownership position in your current operation? No. Now you've got this team, you've got all the people in the right seats on the bus moving forward. And, and to run down that list real quick, let me, let me just run down it and make sure I understand. You've got two listing partners, six buyer specialists, one listing manager, one closing client care manager, one courier, two marketing website folks that are part-time, and then yourself as the rainmaker. Does that sound right? Did I leave anybody out? That's it. Let's go back to the, the two listing partners because that's, that's kind of an interesting area as well. Not a lot of people have jumped into that arena. How have you structured that with your listing partner? What are they doing and how are they getting compensated? They receive a commission split and I can share my team commission splits if somebody wants to contact me offline. I try not to do that in any interviews or speaking engagements because it's different from brokerage to brokerage and market to market. But we negotiated a specific split for all the leads, essentially what happens is my listing manager takes an incoming lead, she vets it, she fills out the intake sheet for them, pulls any pertinent information, determines if they are a short sale candidate or a regular sale candidate, and she sets the appointment. And then the boys get an appointment on the calendar, and then they have a full packet of information to pull their CMA and go forward. So we, we schedule it for them. And so they essentially only take a lead that's already been vetted and appointment made and then they go list it. Then they'll babysit it until it sells. So they're not doing any follow-up calls to the seller leads, is that correct? Nope. They follow up on only with their sellers. The listings manager, she's the one that follows up on the leads and says, are you ready to list? Do you need more information? What do you need? I want them to be talking to actively listed sellers so that we can unlock that revenue. Is the listing manager also doing follow-up calls for the buyer agents? No, no, they do their own follow-up. In fact, two of my buyer agents have hired their own assistants, but they're not under my employee. They've hired them separately themselves, so they have somebody to help them on follow-up. I'm really running a little brokerage here, but it's under under my thumb, so it's still my team. And so the, the listing partners are, are just simply going out, listing the properties, but they're also then, once the listing occurs, the listing partners are tracking it from the time the listing is signed all the way through the closing of the transaction. Is that correct? Yes. They hold the hand and talk about the showings and the feedback and do you need a price reduction and do you need brochures and they negotiate the deal, work out the inspections, repairs and all those things go to closing. All the normal stuff. The biggest thing we take off their plate is that chasing around of listing leads. Well, I'm trying to think of how to ask this question without you having to reveal too much, but I'm curious, most people that are bringing in the listing partners, 
I want the agents out there to know who are, who are trying to put together teams. Listing partners are typically paid a smaller percentage than buyer agents because it doesn't take as much time on each transaction. Are you in that similar situation? You don't have to tell us the exact numbers, but are you paying less per transaction as a percentage for your listing partners than you do for your buyer agents? Well, it would depend on which buyer agent you're talking about because my six different girls are all on different splits because of where they are with their number of transactions and their experience in the business. And so the listing partners make more than some of the girls and less than some of the girls. Ah, okay. To me, everything's negotiable. And so everything is is not cut and dried, and I don't do resets at the beginning of the year or any of that. To me, it's always a rolling average. It's a rolling thing with your experience level and what you're turning with transactions and I want to keep my people with me and I want to keep them happy and so if they're doing a great job for the client and they're you know bringing in revenue for the team I'm going to keep them happy. When we were talking about the buyer agents you mentioned that you like to bring in brand new people but it sounds like on the listing partners you're bringing in some very experienced people. So you have two different concepts there, one for the listing partner, one for the buyer agent. Why do you want buyer agents who have limited or no experience? Well, buyer agents tend to be easier to train than listing agents because there's two different aspects of this business. So if you're working buyers, it's really when you're starting out, it's not that hard to go unlock some doors and let somebody into a house. Because the consumers will find the houses they want through the MLS and through Realtor.com and wherever else they're doing their searching. Now, once that buyer selects a house, it's going to be up to the agent to help them run comps and work the transaction. Well, that's something you can really mentor somebody through. So my agents can email me at night and say, I need some help running comps on this house. Well, I can run comps for them and give it to them and help them with that with their buyer. On the listing side, it's a little bit different because the seller is going to expect you personally to have that level of knowledge when you walk in the door. They can't walk in the door, look at the house, and say, I'm going to talk to Lee and get back to you with a number because the, the listing seller is going to say, screw you. I can call eight other agents who know this neighborhood. You obviously don't know this neighborhood. They won't hire you. So it's a whole different experience. Buyers, for whatever reason, don't hold their buyer agents to the same level of expertise that sellers hold their listing agents to. I have to have people on the listing side that are comfortable listing a home and are comfortable with the confrontational conversation that says, you are a smoker and this house smells like smoke. We have to remediate this before the house will sell. A brand new agent does not have the balls to walk into a house and tell somebody their house smells like smoke or cat pee. They just don't have it. You have to have a thick skin and some experience under your belt before you're able to walk in a door and successfully say that without pissing off the seller and losing the deal. So there's different levels of expertise required. Now, that doesn't mean that all my buyer agents are green. My best buyer agent has been a realtor for 13 years. She was in new homes until 2009. I love new homes agents because they know houses, they know how to sell, but they don't have the bad habits that most agents develop after working for a general brokerage firm with no guidance and no mentoring. And so my top buyer agent made $252,000 last year just working buyers for me. So she is not green. She is good, good, good. And she will close a buyer, get them a smoking deal, and they will rave, 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 rave about her. I try to get her to work listings because she's so good. 
she worked about two of them and said, I don't want to do this. There's too much confrontation. There's no warm and fuzzy. It's not happy. I, they want more money than I can get for their house. And you just have a different personality type that really succeeds with listings than you do that really succeeds with buyers. How do you manage these people? Are you having weekly meetings? Uh, what's your involvement with the team? Every year we have a team advance, and we generally do that in November or December where we plan ahead for the coming year and talk about when we're going to do client events, who's going to take vacation when, um, what everybody's income and transaction goals are, what their personal goals are. So we do all of this ahead of the year. And part of the team advance every year, we always say we're going to wind up having a weekly meeting, and that never happens because we get busy and we stop showing up. So we have about three weekly meetings before we give up on those. But we probably get together every two to three months and have a big giant team meeting where we just talk about where are we in relation to team goals, what's working well, what's not working, what needs to be tweaked, are there any systems that are missing a step, is there anything we have seen in the market that others need to be aware of. So we just basically use it as a big sharing time. The sales team, the buyer agents get together on their own and have little sales meetings where they talk about the new inventory that's come into the market, where they talk about who's going to do open houses when and where, and they kind of work their own little schedule. I'm in the office with the admins every day, so we have periodic little impromptu meetings just to you know, we'll spot a gap on a system and we'll add it, add in a step and fix it. So it's it's just, it's an ongoing thing. I, I'm not a formal manager and I'm certainly not a micromanager. I want my people to feel empowered to go be successful. And if they have to spend my money to do that, I want them to feel free to do that so that they know that if they're spending the money, they can defend it. And I let them spend my money and they haven't abused me yet. Well, Lee, I'm sure there are a lot of agents out there listening to us talk. They're listening to your your team, which has just grown. They're listening to the marketing and the advertising you're doing, and they probably have a question on their mind, which is, are you profitable? Yes, I am very profitable. Thank you. For agents who are trying to get a picture of where their business is at, where it should be, where they're going, could you share with us your profit margin as a percentage of your gross revenues? Not looking for dollars, but percentages. So... The old school rule of thumb is that when you're in a growth phase in your business, you spend about 50% of your revenues on your business. So you're, you're heavily spending in your business. I'm at the point now where my business is, I'm still growing it, but I'm kind of in a maintenance mode because a lot of my stuff is not needing to be recreated anymore. I'm just uh, fine-tuning the systems that I have. And right now, I'm about 17% of my GCI is spent on my business. So then after I take taxes off of that, which I abhor, and I am very angry at Washington for the amount of money they take out of my pocket for the amount of risk that I take on to provide salary positions. I, I do take home a very good percentage of what I make. But it's, it's a matter of making your dollars work for you. And realtors in general are very, very good at spending and not very good at tracking. So one little tip I'll give in regard to profit margins and you know money and tracking is that you need a business credit card. And even if you're not a credit person, you need a business credit card because you're going to have to charge things like pay-per-click ads and websites and these and such to a credit card. If it's separate from your regular stuff, it's much easier to track it. And then what I recommend is that every six months, you call your credit card company and get a new card. Tell them you lost it at the gas station or you left it at Office Depot, but you need a new card. And what happens is when that changes the number, 
it will stop all of those auto billing things that you've set up and forgot about, the 1999s and 29s and 49s and all those little monthly charges that keep coming through. And so those vendors will then start reaching out to you saying, hey, this credit card's being declined. You can then stop in your tracks and look at it and say, oh, is that making me money or not? And if it's not, stop paying for it. If it is making you money, say, oh, golly, you willikers, I lost my lost my card at the gas station, and let me give you the new number. But it will force you to evaluate your business on a regular basis instead of waiting until the end of the year when you say, oh, shit, I spent every penny that I made. Because realtors are bad about that. They don't save for taxes. They don't save for retirement. They just don't save. And I have a tax account. I pay my estimated quarterlies. I pay myself a salary out of my corporation. I have retirement accounts that are set up. And all of that stuff gets paid before I ever take a second penny out of anything. Are you paying yourself a salary? Yes. I have a corporation that uh, that receives my commission dollars. That corporation pays me a salary. Is that the same corporation that you're using to run your team? Yes. Back to the question on uh, net profit margin. I'm not sure I, I understood correctly. Did you say that your net profit margin was 50%? It'd be around 50%. So about 50% of what comes in the top at the end of the year is coming out the bottom. Well, after taxes, yeah. Very good. So the top comes in, all you're making all the payments to all your people, all your marketing, et cetera. Half is coming out the bottom. Mm-hmm. Lee, what drives you? I don't know. I don't rest. I don't sit down. I don't sit still. I like being, I like being number one. I like all the plaques on my wall. I like being an expert. I like being a resource for people. I like being known and without, I don't like being, I don't want to be known as somebody who's untouchable and arrogant and rude. I want to be known as somebody that's fun and helpful and smart. So I I have a desire to be known for something bigger than where I started. So essentially when I die, I want a really well-attended funeral. And I want a lot of people crying and saying how I affected their life and that I helped their faith life grow, and that I babysat their kids, and I helped their business grow and taught them how to spend more time with their family so that I really want to be missed one day. Well, Lee, why have you been so successful? I think it's because I tell the truth and I answer the phone and I work every day. I am not a fluff person. And if you ask me a question, you're going to get an answer. And I'm so sorry if you don't like it, but really I'm not sorry because I am who I am. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. In a world of people who are wishy-washy and scared to own their opinion and scared to tell the truth and scared to acknowledge the truth and scared to let a deal get away and scared, 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 I'm not scared of any of that. Because if somebody can't sell a house, I'm going to give them all the resources they need and I'm going to send them on their merry little way and I'm going to find somebody else. And if somebody can't buy a house, I'm going to give them all the tools and resources they need, and I'm going to send them on their merry little way, and I'll find somebody else. But, you know, this is what I do. I mean, I, I have to be good at this. People rely on me. This is the largest financial transaction most people will ever deal with, and I have to be on my A game every day. And nothing drives me more nuts than lazy realtors who don't seem to grasp the fact that when they're showing property, you're walking into someone else's home where they're going to lay their head at night and where they're going to tuck their children into bed. And they don't seem to understand that when they're talking about market data, they're trying to help somebody evaluate if they can afford to sell or not or if it's important for them to sell or not. 
our number one job with people is to help them see what's happening and understand it. I want to be that resource, and I want to be good at what I do. So do I read a lot of industry stuff? Yeah. Do I read economic stuff? Yeah. Do I go to Washington, D.C. for mid-year and meetings and visit with politicians? Absolutely I do. It's important. This is important to people. This is where they live. It will never, ever fail to amaze me how these realtors can go into someone's home to show it to a client, not take their shoes off, drag mud off through it, leave the lights on, leave the stove on, let the cat out, leave the door unlocked, and the seller comes home and their home has been treated that way and they feel violated. And I have to tell that, that consumer, I am so sorry that that realtor didn't treat your home any better than that. So... I teach classes and I go to conferences to continue teaching realtors and I coach realtors and I mentor realtors because I want us to get better. I want people to look on real estate as an honorable profession that cares about people and not as a bunch of money grubbers. I'm off my soapbox now. Lee, you mentioned that you have some separate accounts for your future. You've got retirement accounts. And I also think you mentioned you own some investment real estate. Mm-hmm. What would you advise uh, an agent who's thinking about starting a, their own real estate portfolio? Buy where you live, unless you live in California, in which case you can buy in North Carolina or Texas because you can't buy where you live. But I, I have a lot of investor clients from high-priced markets like California where they, they can't buy a property that's going to make a return. You can do that here. You can really do it in Texas. There's really great uh, rental properties to be had there. But you start with where you live. And anybody that's in real estate, first of all, they should own their own home. If you're currently a renter, figure out how to go buy a home and go buy a house and be vested in the game that you're in. And if you can't do it today, talk to your favorite lender and get on a plan so that you can make that happen, so that that way you're walking your walk and talking your talk. Then start looking at rental properties and look at how they work and how does it make sense. And for most realtors, they start with single-family residential properties, then they move into multifamily, and from there you move into industrial, commercial, warehouse properties. You know, I, I'm a single-family gal. It's what I like. It's what I do. I'll buy a foreclosure. I don't flip. I'm a long-term hold person. I will buy a foreclosure, fix it up, and rent it out. And to me, one of those houses is my daughter's college, and the other house is my son's college, and the other six are my retirement one day. They can either churn out cash for me every month, or I can cash them in and have one big bucket. So as realtors, we have commission to play with. We're crazy if we don't buy real estate because we can take that out of closing cost, off the price. I mean, you've, you've got in your hand several thousand dollars to work with. So why do we not do it more often? We know what the good deals are. We know where the good hot markets are. We know where it's up and coming. So we should be vested in this process. We should have some skin in the game. I finally bought a vacation home and last year. I only wish I'd done it in 2009 when things were softer than they were last year. But, you know, we didn't have the resources at that time because I was keeping my belt really, really tight during the downturn. So we went ahead and bought a property, and I'm thrilled because I ran the numbers on it. It's going to pay for itself, and it'll be paid for long before I'm retired. So it's all about spreadsheets and numbers, but real estate should be part of your long-term financial game plan if you are a realtor period. End of discussion. Lee, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? I would say go find a successful realtor, look at the top listing agents in your market, and go ask them if you can work for them as a buyer's agent. 
I don't care if you come from big money, daddy's money, you used to work at the bank, you've got the biggest bunch of frat brothers on the planet, they're not necessarily going to use you right out of the gate. So go find somebody who's successful who has that surplus of leads and volunteer to work those leads. And yes, your split's going to be smaller than it would be on your own, but a little of something is better than all of nothing. And then go spend a year, year and a half with them. I know my best buyer agents are going to be with me a year, year and a half tops, and then they're going to have their feet under them, and they're going to want to go off on their own and, and, and keep all the commission dollars. I know this is how it works. They're baby birds, and they have to leave the nest. Two of my girls haven't left my nest. One's been with me eight years. The other one's been with me four years because they understand that outside of the nest, it's a whole different environment. But as a buyer agent, some people have an ego, and they're very good at listening, and they need to be on their own. They need to grow up and be their own team, and that's cool. It makes me happy because I helped them gain the knowledge and expertise they needed to go off and do it. But being on somebody's team will provide cash flow. It will provide knowledge. It will provide an environment where you can succeed faster than if you're on your own. There's no need to recreate the wheel in this business. Do you think the top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? I grew up on on Star Power. I grew up on Howard Brenton, and that's how I built my business, learning by people who do more business than I do and who did business smarter than I do and who have ideas I would never have thought of but didn't mind sharing them. So I mean, we're in a business that's seen as cutthroat, and it doesn't have to be. We can all get better together if we're willing to. Welly, we can all get better together. You showed us how a young mom can build a cranking team. You were super productive last year with your team of seven members. My mind is anticipating a spectacular year ahead with your bigger, bolder team of 14. You show your willingness to invest in your success and swing for the fences. Your direct, straightforward, blunt, and honest approach creates trust with your customers and team. You showed your willingness to think outside the box by acquiring an existing team and starting a property management division. I expect to hear great things in the years ahead. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who is a fourth degree black belt generates 90% of his business from repeat and referrals, and sold 185 homes last year. Find out who he is on the next Success Call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at freeleadtime.com. That's freeleadtime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, 
tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.